before we get into the, the real content of, of this passage in John, we, we do have to take a, a few minutes, because Pat said I had to, to talk about some matters of, of the textual criticism. Textual criticism, it's a kind of a field of biblical studies that basically looking at all of the, 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 the New Testament manuscript witnesses that we have, thousands of them, and, and trying to to, to see what the, the most pure, uh, tr- try to get to the, as close as possible to the original text and producing that original text. That's what we're talking about. But we, we have to say a few things because of what um, I said earlier. As, as some of you may not have this passage in your copy of the New Testament, and most of you probably do, but it's included as a remark like I have in my copy here. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 8. 11. And so we just need to deal with that for a few minutes this morning before we really get into the, into the text. The, the, and, and here's the deal. The oldest fragment of the New Testament that we have is this small piece of papyrus from 100 A.D. It's called the Rylands Fragment. That's the oldest surviving copy of the New Testament we have. It's about three and a half inches by two and a half inches long. It's just a little scrap. And it contains a, uh, just a few verses from John 18 in Greek. And, and so right now, at this point, until there are any other archaeological discoveries, this is the closest we can come to an original, um, original writing of the New Testament, of Scripture. And so, because what happened, when John wrote his gospel account, it's not that people immediately took it to the museum so that it could be preserved for future generations. No, it's like when Paul wrote his letters to the Ephesians, and to the Galatians, and to the Romans. It, they went to churches, and they were read to these churches, and then they were circulated among the Christian community. And, uh, and so it became the task of people in the church to begin copying those original documents and, and by hand and to, so that these could be preserved, but this was, this was how they were used. And, and you get in, in the Old Testament, in terms of the Old Testament, it, it, there was this professionally trained group of scholars, they were called the Masoretes, and their task every day was to copy the Old Testament and so, that, so that the Word of God could be preserved, again, for future generations. And so... So this was, this God's people have been doing this for centuries, but the reality is we, we don't have those original documents. Now we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. I hope you believe in the inspiration of the Bible. <laughs> um, that, that, the, that the original writers of Scripture were so moved by the Holy Spirit of God that the Spirit superintend their writings so that, the, that, the, that, that He inspired the original writings of Scripture. And so what they received was the very Word of God. And, and we, we take it as such. Now, that does not mean that, that each and every copyist who copied those original documents and then who copied the copies of the original documents through, through every, to, to the next generation and through the ages doesn't mean that they all received that exact, exact same divine help. And so we restrict inspiration and inerrancy is a word we use to to what's called the autographa just meaning those original autographs those original writings of scripture and so our doctrinal statement of this very this church we begin the very first section in our doctrinal statement is on the scriptures let me just read 
that little paragraph. It says, We believe in the Holy Scriptures, accepting fully the writings of the Old and New Testaments as the very Word of God, listen, verbally inspired in all parts and therefore holy without error as originally given by God, altogether sufficient in themselves as our only infallible rule of faith and practice. And then we list several verse references that support that statement. And so the challenge is, we don't have any writings that were originally given by God. And so, so how do we deal with this? And so this is where textual criticism comes in. It's this, it's a science of, of, of weighing and evaluating these thousands of ancient surviving copies of the New Testament. That's what textual critics do. Sounds like a great pastime, doesn't it? Something you want to jump into. But there, there are different families of copies of Scripture. There are different schools of copyists. And so all copies are not created equal. There are, there are some that are more accurate than others. And, 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 and the copies don't always agree with one another in every single detail, obviously. Now, with respect to the main substance of Scripture, there are no significant issues, no major discrepancies between these, these copies. It's like ivory soap, 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent pure. I mean, that, so, so you hear people will say, well, the Bible's full of errors. That is not true. Uh, to say it's got all of these discrepancies. No, there, there is wide agreement among, it's incredible, the agreement among all of these families of copies of, of the New Testament, let's just say. For their, their, but there are less than 1% of the texts of, uh, in the Bible that have some kind of variant reading. Again, is, 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 there's no major Christian doctrine that's affected by any of these variants. It's usually a pronoun or a or a, an article that's present in some, absent in others, that kind of a thing. Um, but but the one that is probably the most interesting of all the variants among these different copies of the New Testament is the passage we're in today. It's this story. Because it's this whole story that's present in some manuscripts, absent in others. And here's the reality. The oldest and what are generally considered the best Surviving manuscripts do not include this story in the, in, in the account of the Gospel of John. Or at least don't include it at this place in the Gospel of John. That's the reality. And so the general consensus among textual critics is that this is not part of the original Gospel of John. And so many New Testament scholars take that. And so, as you, as you read commentaries, as you study this passage, you'll, it's kind of like in this corner you have this group, and in this corner you have this group. And there are all these big heavy, heavy hitters that I love and know and benefit from. And so, so you have those that don't think it's part of the canon of Scripture, D.A. Carson, whom I quote often, and, and A.T. Robertson, and G. Campbell Morgan, and Leon Morris, these guys that, have, that deal with John and are so great in the Gospel of John. And, then, and, then, and the other, at the same time, you have others who see this as authentic, see this as apostolic, say it should be treated as inspired Scripture. Uh, because generally it's more internal evidence in the Gospel of John that it, that it fits with the flow of John and it fits better than if you leave it out. It, it's perfectly aligned with the character of, of Jesus Christ. It fits the, his, 
His pattern of life and ministry. It fits the pattern of the scribes and Pharisees. They're in character here in this account. It, and, and, and some say it was probably removed by early copyists of the New Testament because it doesn't show up until 500, BC, or 500 A.D. or around that time. Uh, Augustine thought that copyists removed it because um, because they they particularly North Africa where asceticism was was dominant in the culture that they thought that it would that women would read this and feel licensed to to give themselves to infidelity and so that perhaps it was removed early on. So so you have others who think it should be included in John's Gospel. William Hendrickson, who I benefit from every week, A. W. Pink, J. C. Ryle. More recently, James Boyce and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. And well, my final conclusion is I do not know. <laughs> when it's all said and done, I don't think the evidence is conclusive either way. I don't think that you can dogmatically say that this should not be. This is definitely not part of John's gospel account. And there are there are many more reasons, and we're not going to dive into those. But I also don't don't think that it can be proven that it it wasn't part of John's original writing. So instead of removing this section from the Bible, I, I think it should be retained. I think it's wise to put it in brackets and to, to leave a comment, but it should be used for our benefit. We shouldn't be afraid to teach and to preach this passage. But, but I also would say all the textual evidence should be laid out for, for folks to see. And so uh, it should be made known. So full disclosure, I'm not trying to hide anything, not trying to slip one by you. I want you to be honest. I want to be honest with you there. There, there is this debate among, again, students and scholars of the Bible. So that's my mini-lecture on textual criticism. You can just poke your neighbor if they've fallen asleep, and I lost them early on, so let's, let's get back into it. But, by the way, again, I hope you're not bothered when I say that there are, there are copy errors in, in Scripture, in the Bible. Uh, again, you'll hear this, there, oh, the Bible's full of errors, and we don't have the original writings of the, the Scripture, so how can we say we have the Word of God? You know, this is just a book of man, and it's got fingerprints of man all over it, and it's not God's Word. Uh, that's, that's just, that doesn't hold up. That would be like saying that if somebody planted a bomb and blew up the Bureau of Standards and Measures in Washington, D.C., where they have, you know, this is what a, this is the official pound, this is the official inch, and if they, if they, in doing that, they blew up the official yardstick for the United States and for the world, really, and, and so they blew that up, and, 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 and to say then that there, there aren't enough surviving yardsticks to piece together what a yard is, that's foolishness. We have it's not hard at all to reconstruct what a yard is because we have so many copies. And, and yes, they might vary by infinitesimally small amounts and you would have to look at a microscope and so they might be off. To, but you could get what a yard is. That's how it is with Scripture. We have so many copies and there's such consistency among the copies. There's no question that what we have in our hands is the Word of God. So take confidence in that. Don't be, don't be blown around by, the, by those kinds of arguments and, and let your faith be shaken. Though they're, they're empty arguments. Okay, that, okay, now I'm ending my lecture on textual criticism. Okay, <laughs> for real. So we're getting into this beautiful story, and it is that. And I don't want you to miss it, that, that we, we see this text. It's, yes, it's created some, some difficulty, but, it, but, but what I want to see, just three things this morning. Three ironies in this passage that make it make the story so compelling 
see these three ironies. The first one is very, very quick, and it's this, is that the popular teacher is homeless. The popular teacher is homeless. That this rabbi, Jesus, who has crowds of people pressing in to hear what he has to say and to hear him teach, he, he has no home. He sleeps under the stars on the Mount of Olives. You see in verse 53 of chapter 7, they went each to his own house after the big showdown on the, the great day of the feast. Everybody goes to their home. But Jesus, on his part, he went to the Mount of Olives. He spent many a night sleeping outside. And there are other passages that confirm this. Even his disciples had homes that he could stay in. There were times that Jesus stayed in homes and and, and, and Mary and Martha and with Lazarus. And, but but he often was alone outside. And, and if this passage is right in its placement in the Gospel of John, this is, this is early October, and at that altitude of Jerusalem, this time of year, it would have been cold at night. And so here he is, sleeping outside. The enemies of God, the opponents of God's Messiah, they have homes to return to. They have beds to sleep in. But the very Son of God... Has no home. Has no house. Jesus said elsewhere that even the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son, son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And so I just, just see the irony of that that's set up there. I know it's subtle, but I don't want you to miss The Creator, the Sustainer, the Savior of the world, God incarnate. He, he's, he's huddled under a cloak to stay warm under this an olive tree, sleeping alone at night on the Mount of Olives. You think, what condescension. So, that's the first irony. Verse 2, we just continue on. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So, this, when he says early in the morning, this is early. This is pre-dawn kind of hours. And so, real low light conditions, long purple shadows, just barely light to see, damp, everything's still damp with dew. And so, early in the morning, you have the sound of Jesus' voice that begins reverberating through the temple again. And again, the feast is over. A lot of people have gone home, but, but the temple was always. And so, it's coming to life for the dead and teaches whoever will come and listen to Him. And so after all the people have seen and all they've heard the day before from Jesus, you know, this crowd quickly gathers. So there's this buzz, there's electricity in the temple that's building as Jesus starts teaching. And so it's this beautiful scene in these early pre-dawn hours. And then it's, it's broken up by this disturbance. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, in the midst of these people and Jesus Himself, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, in the very act of adultery. I'll just let you figure that out. Now when the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So, and then verse 6, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. This brings us to the second irony that we see in this text. And it's the irony this, that the, these righteous judges are guilty. 
The righteous judges, and air quotes righteous, are guilty. These religious leaders are shining the spotlight on this woman and, and her sin. And they're convinced that at that place and at that time, she is the worst sinner in the temple that morning. She's, she's the epitome of, of wickedness and evil. But Jesus sees things very differently. As should we. That the ugliest sin in the scene isn't this woman's. It's not some physical act that she committed with a, a man. The, the, the perverse hypocrisy of these so-called religious leaders is far more putrid than any act that this woman has committed. Now, all sin is offensive in God's sight, but as you see in Scripture, there are some sins that, it, as God has revealed, are more offensive to Him. I mean, in Matthew 10 and 20 to 24, you, Jesus says that basically the worst sins are not debauchery, the worst sins are willful hypocrisy. And He says to those people that I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you because of that hypocrisy, unrepentance. And so this group of cold, self-righteous, hypocritical, religious thugs just drags this woman who's guilty of open sexual sin and they just throw her at the feet of Jesus while He's teaching. Now, we got to ask the question. I hope you're thinking it. Where's the dude in this? She's caught in the act of adultery. There's another half. There's another party to this. That, 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 but they only bring the woman. Did, did the man escape? Did he run away? Was he able to get out of their clutches? Did the posse just kind of let him go? Maybe he was one of their own? They knew the guy. He was a leader in the community. Was this just this first century chauvinism, which was a reality? Was, was this all a setup? Was she baited there? Bottom line, we don't know. But what we do know is that the man is gone. They have this woman like a squirming dog on a leash here. She's, she's hastily clothed, no doubt, because she's caught, taken immediately, barefoot, disheveled, humiliated, scared for a life, uh, just ashamed. She's been snatched from a bedroom where she's been made the object of some man's sexual, some, some man's sexual object. But the guy's gone. He's probably home with his wife and kids. No consequences. Yeah, here she is, dragged by this angry religious mob with stones in their hands, ready to execute her, taking to the temple. I mean, one of the one of the many things we see here in this passage is it, one of the things that we see is how far the Pharisees had fallen as as a group. That that Pharisee that literally literally means just a separated one, and then they came about during. After the exile, in that intertestamental period, that, that God's people, Israel, they, 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 many people in Israel began to lose their zeal for obedience to God's law, and they became lax in, in obeying the, the conditions of God's covenant with His people. And so, so there was this group of people that, that were committed to spiritual and moral and theological reform among God's people and, and they banded together in an effort to kind of purify the Jewish people. So, 
So they, they, they committed themselves to zealous and passionate obedience to, to, to the law. And, and they, that's why they became called the, the separated ones, the Pharisees. It was not a pejorative term when it was, when it was begun. They were the, the Puritans of ancient Israel. They were reformed in their faith, we could say. They were us in ancient Israel. They, they cared about the Scriptures. They wanted to, to see it lived out and show up in life. And this was, this was how they began. But what began with this group committed to obeying God's law devolved into this, what we see here in John 8. They're, they're dragging this woman to the temple, not out of zeal for the law. They're not so scandalized by this woman's behavior and by her sin and, and they're coming to Jesus and saying, help us just kind of purge Jerusalem of, of wickedness. Help us, Jesus. We, we care so much about God's righteousness. and That's not it. We know, we're told why they have this woman here. She's live bait. That's all they see her. Live bait to trap Jesus. She's this expendable pawn that they're prepared to sacrifice so that they can corner Jesus and be able to say to Him, Check. We got you. That's all she is. She's an object. She's totally dehumanized by, by these religious leaders. And I would just say there's quickly, don't treat people as objects. Don't do that. It, don't dehumanize people so, so you use them for your own pleasure. Or use them to make some point, even if it's a religious point. That's not okay. This is what happens with lust, men and women. You're, you're dehumanizing someone. You're just making them an object. Personal pleasure. You're, or, but this happens, you try to make some point, and this happens on talk radio all the time. And in social media, you see this kind of stuff where people just rip people to shreds. Just use them to make some statement. And I, I mean, I, maybe some celebrity and they, it's an easy target or something like that. And, but just be careful. Don't treat people as objects to be used. Every human being is made in the image of God. There's a dignity there. And so, so treat people as human beings to be loved as God loves them. And so this is, but this is how the scribes and Pharisees, how they're using this woman. And, and if they were so, if they were truly zealous for God, they would not be attempting to destroy the Son of God. That's the basic premise here. This is the irony: is these righteous judges are more guilty than this wicked sinner, as they saw her. They couldn't. And so verse 6, this they said to test him that they might bring some charge against him. So what's the test? Well, they're trying to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma here. Because during Roman occupation, the, Roman, the Romans gave a lot of self-rule to the nations that they conquered. And so they gave them religious liberty and they could worship as they pleased. And they gave them really a, a large measure of freedom. But, but the one, one of the restrictions was is that they could not carry out capital punishment. Any capital offenses, any death penalty cases had to be processed under, uh, through the Roman judicial system. They couldn't do that themselves. And so, 
So this is, this is why Jesus was sentenced to death by Pilate, not Caiaphas, the high priest. That The Jews were not allowed that liberty. And so the Pharisees, they're setting Jesus up. They're putting him to the test. And so, because if Jesus says, yes, stone the woman, then what does he, what do they, can they, they can run right to Roman headquarters and say, hey man, there's this teacher out here, and he's, he's saying, and he's, 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 um, advocating that we exercise capital punishment against this woman outside of your, your system of law. So they can go to the Romans and get Jesus in trouble. But, if Jesus says, don't stone her, well, no, they're going to run right to the Sanhedrin and say, well, Jesus has just set aside the law of Moses. He didn't care anything about God's law. And, 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 he, and, and Moses' law says, requires that she be executed, and Jesus says, don't, don't worry about it. So they think they have Jesus on the horns of this dilemma. Stone her, he's in trouble with the Romans. Don't stone her, he's in trouble with the Jews. And so they think they got him. And either way, he's in big trouble. They must have been so, so happy with themselves for coming up with this little plot, this foolproof plan. And I just imagine them just giddy with excitement here. And, and they've got him. And so what does Jesus do? How is he going to solve this? Is he going to give some lecture on capital punishment? And No. Look at what, what the text says. Verse 6, into verse 6. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. What? <laughs> this is his response. I mean, they're, they're in the temple, so it's all stone floor, but you have tens of thousands of sandals. Eric and Amanda can attest to how much dirt can be tracked into a house or to an indoor space when you live in the desert. Uh, and so, so how many times a day, I don't know, you guys swept out your, uh, your house, but we got to witness some of that. I mean, a big pile of dirt every, every few hours it blows in or it's tracked in. So you got all these sandals bringing all this dust during the Feast of Booze. So there's plenty of dirt on the ground. And, and here he is. He just gets down. The scribes, Pharisees, they're waiting for Jesus to answer their question. And he just bends down and starts writing in the dirt. And now, if there's any verse in the Bible that sparks speculation, it's this one. The $64,000 question is, what in the world was he writing? Um, and there have been no shortage of guesses. Um, at, at this, there are some think he was writing a verse of scripture, and there are particular verses that people guess speculate he might have written. Maybe the Ten Commandments. Did he start making a list of sins of those those scribes and Pharisees that were that dragged this woman there? So he looks he looks one of them in the eye and says embezzler. He writes embezzler. He looks another one and he says and he writes murderer. So is that was that what he was he doing, or, or or was it that many of these men were adulterers themselves? And so he looks Fred in the eye and he writes, Sarah. I mean, we don't know. Obviously, that's the bottom line. I mean, I we all love to speculate, but um, was he just showing he was disinterested? So he just kind of yeah, I hear you. But forget you know, he just doesn't really care about the questioning. He knows this is foolish. This is a kangaroo court, and so he's just kind of showing his kind of godly disinterest and they're quarreling and they're arguing or some have suggested he's stalling he's trying to figure out how he's going to respond to them so he's just kind of uh, just doodling we do that sometimes I don't think it was that one um, but the bottom line we have no clue I think Calvin is wise he's known as saying this where God closes his holy mouth I will desist from inquiry and that's probably wise counsel for us. We don't know, and apparently it's not important for us to know because it wasn't revealed to us. 
But it may be that the Pharisees thought that Jesus was kind of stalling here. And because they, they just keep pressing him, they ask him over and over and over again here, they want him to answer the question, tell him what he would do in this case. And so you see in verse 7, they continued to ask him, as Jesus is writing their cancer, as he's out sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. Checkmate. <laughs> it's over. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. I mean, he completely turns the tables on them. He puts them now on the horns of the dilemma. He puts it right back on them. Now, verse 7 is probably one of the two verses in Scripture that is more well known by the average person on the street in the United States than any other. And, and everybody knows. They don't know that it's from the Bible, perhaps, but they can quote this verse. And the other one would be, judge not lest you be judged. Because people love to quote verse 7. And it's often misunderstood. It's badly misapplied. Um, because Jesus isn't affirming, hey, what's right for me may not be right for you. So who are you to judge? Who are you to cast the first stone? You see, you've never done anything wrong, so you can't tell me that I, I'm doing anything wrong. He's not, he's not advocating, advocating some kind of moral relativism. That's not the point of this passage now. But don't stall out there. We don't want to linger on what this is not saying. What is Jesus saying? Because what he is saying is profound. And it's shocking. And it should stun us as it stunned them. And, and it should be incredibly convicting to us. And so I want us to get it. The words are powerful. He's talking about this tendency we all have in our hypocrisy to to shame and to punish people who are caught in their sin. Caught in the act. We, we have this desire. And the residue lingers in all of us. I think it's particularly a temptation for religious people like us. And so his words are directed at people like us, who religious people who who can... I mean, it's not, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to punish criminals for committing crimes. He's not setting us some behavior. But this, this, what this is, and, and, and just concede. So let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And they're just stunned, speechless. He just takes the wind right out of their wicked sails. And they're done. He's not caught in their trap. He, he upholds the law of Moses. So, so he says in a doesn't relic society, but adultery is just kind of laughed at, it's made light of, it's seen as normal, almost ex- it, it wrecks homes. It hurts children. It breaks down a society when it becomes just kind of normalized and, and widespread and commonplace. It's God values. It's, it's awful. It's terribly hurtful, fragmenting, shattering sin. And so Jesus doesn't minimize this sin. You're, you're full. Verse 9 though, but when they heard it, they went away one by one. <laughs> this incredible disappearing act begins to take place. And another one crits, but he is merciful with sinners. <laughs> I mean, sadly, we can be the exact opposite of that, can't we? And we can, be, we can be masterful at ripping sinners to shreds. And we can be very comfortable with, 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 and long-suffering and merciful with religious hypocrites. 
Because they maybe vote the same way we do. They may dress the same way we do. They may, they may like some of the same things we like. They care about the same issues we care about, but they're just, they're, they're religious hypocrites, and we can be buddies with them. We can be comfortable, comfortable around the people that Jesus seemed to repel. And we can be repelled by the people that Jesus seemed to spend the most time with. I mean, his reputation was that of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was a friend of sinners. He himself said that he didn't come to call the spiritually healthy, he came to call the sick. Luke 5, 31, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, if Jesus was a friend of sinners, then somehow, in some way, we should be too. Now, again, I, there's, this would be a whole sermon in itself, because there's a lot of things I'm not saying when I say that. But, and I know instantly our thoughts can kind of go to the broader question of how Christianity and the culture relate, and how, how do we work through those issues, and that's a valid line of discussion, but I don't want you to default to that. Just start with friendship. Simple friendship. It's, it's, it's far more practical, far more relevant than, than trying to debate over the church's posture in society, particularly in our context. Befriend sinners. Be okay with associating with the margins of society in some ways. Eat meals with them. This is what Jesus did. And we don't, we don't, this is, listen, this is where qualification, we don't have to be indifferent about morals to love moral, immoral people. And Jesus was a friend of sinners, not because he just kind of laughed at sin and, and ignore, or ignored it, or, or that he just kind of had, enjoyed light-hearted fun with those who were engaged in immorality, like no big deal. That's not it at all. He didn't minimize sin. He was, he was, standard of righteousness. Um, but he, he loved sinners. And, and we, should, we should love sinners. Sinners who sin. Um, we shouldn't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. It is, the Scriptures make it very clear. You, you cannot please God unless you have the Spirit of God living in you. So why should we expect that that, for that to happen? So I, I'm, I'm going to resist drawing hard and fast applications. I just want you to sit on this. Compare what God says, what His Word says, with what you hear. Maybe what the, what the kind of the drum that's beating maybe in the radio stations you listen to and the articles you read. Third irony. And we're done. Third irony. The sinful adulteress is forgiven. I know we know what's coming, but um, this is just would have blown these hearers away, these, spe- these, these observers away. The woman is left alone with the only person who meets the qualification that Jesus has laid out for carrying out her execution. He's the only sinless one. So after all the accusers leave, she's face to face with Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus stood up like he did with the religious leaders. He stands up eyeball to eyeball, but it's very different, as we'll see, than how he faced the hypocrites. And he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
I mean, what a scene. See the contrast here. You have the, the guilty and the guiltless, the adulteress and the advocate, the, the sinner and the savior. I mean, this has no doubt been the darkest moment of this woman's life. She's got to be scared out of her mind, maybe angry too. I don't know from just this, this, this mob. But in this moment, the light of the world just bathes her in, his, in just this radiance of His forgiving presence. The only one who's qualified to throw a stone at her has none in His hands. Jesus calls her woman. That's a term of respect, like lady, ma'am. It's the same way Jesus spoke to His mother in Cana. So He's restoring this, this little bit of dignity back to her. He doesn't call her, you harlot, you adulteress. This woman. Doesn't mean Jesus is getting soft on sin. We'll see that. Then, then the woman speaks for the first and the only time. And this is the, there's the only words that are recorded for us from what that came from the lips of this woman. And it's simply a reply to Jesus' question. Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she said, No one, Lord. Now, Lord can simply mean no one, sir. Just a polite, respectful address of a... Of, to a man, it's that this word kurios has a wide range of meanings. Or it, it could, by the grace of God, mean that her eyes were open to see that she's standing in the presence of her redeeming Lord. I don't know. But she says, there's no one to accuse me, Lord. And you might kind of expect Jesus to, <laughs> well, I'm here. I'm here. But he doesn't do that. Jesus says the most, the sweetest words that any human being could ever hear from the lips of our Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now if that doesn't turn you on, then you don't have any switches. If that, if that doesn't warm your heart, then you, your heart is cold and hard. And you've got to pray for God to revive it. Neither do I condemn you. Because, brothers and sisters, this is how each one of us stands in the presence of God. In our own sin, we are naked and ashamed before God. And yet Christ has stood in our midst. He's clothed us in robes of righteousness. And, and He's covered our nakedness. He's covered our shame. And He said to us, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. It's God's grace. That's the basis for holy living. It's not clean up your act and so you can merit God's favor. It's, oh, if there's no condemnation, sin no more. There's a world of difference between those two. And as she left, just I just picture this scene. I was thinking about even this morning. I was sitting and studying. And the sun was coming up. She probably left the temple. She might have walked out of that eastern gate. And just about then, what's happening? The sun's beginning to rise over the hills. And what does Jesus do? He, it would have been about that time. Jesus turns to the crowd and he says... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here that's still in darkness, if anybody feels as though they are that woman and they're, they've been caught in the act, they know they're sinners, they know they fall way short of your standard of righteousness, that they would see the hopelessness of trying to clean up their act, of trying to earn your favor through some good deeds or through stopping some bad behavior to to get you on their side. But they would see the futility of all of that and and yet they would see the gift that you offer to all those who come freely. That you say, if anyone thirsts, let him come. If If anyone hungers, let him eat of me. Receive the bread of life. Everyone who believes in me, I will give water to drink. And so, I pray that if there's anybody here today that that they, they, they're still in darkness, they would see that all it takes is turning to Jesus and, and believing that, he, that, that you died in their place, you rose from the dead, and they can receive the light of life. What a gift that is. For those, who have, uh, those of us who've received that gift, we know the difference it makes. We know what it's like to have that, that moment when our eyes are open, Lord. We see grace instead of condemnation and love instead of wrath and hope instead of despair. So I pray that if there's anybody here who's still in darkness, that they would know light today. And I pray for all of us, God, that these words of Christ, that we would see ourselves in this, ourselves in this scene in some place. And if we, if we are those that with the stones in our hands and and so contrary to how Jesus lived and spoke and thought and loved that we would be convicted by that and, and, and changed by it, Lord. So work in us, Lord, as you see fit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.